This evening we read from the sometimes overlooked book of Esther. We're reading from Esther chapter 3. I believe it on the Bibles provided for you here at church. It's on page 411. But Esther comes just before the book of Job and just after the book of Nehemiah. Page 411 in the books or in the Bibles provided here at church. We do not start at the beginning of the story this evening. We start in chapter 3. Haman has just discovered a plot against the Jews, even a plot against the, uh, the king himself. Yet he is overlooked. Israel finds herself in a difficult position. We're left wondering, is the Lord even here? But as we sift through Esther chapter 3 this evening, we will see indeed the Lord is hard at work despite what the situation may look like. There is certainly a day when faith will be made sight, as we have just sung. So if you would, please read with me Esther chapter 3. We'll begin at verse 1 and read through the entire chapter. Congregation, hear the word of the Lord. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you, not, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispensed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's, to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, and the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps, to the governors over all the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, 
in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. We thank him for it. Father, we pray that you will bless this reading and expounding of your word. Will you give your servant what is needed to relay the truths found in your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, congregation, Esther indeed is an interesting story from the word of God. God's name is never explicitly used in the book. It's an oddity. Although to be sure, as we will see tonight, his presence is certainly felt in the book. Even though we find here, Israel is exiled to the Persian Empire for her sins. She's separated from the promised land of Israel. In fact, only the poorest of the poor people are left there to maintain the crops and the fields. Well, the story of Esther begins with King Ahasuerus throwing a party that lasted six whole months. And as the drinking became heavy, Ahasuerus called for his wife, Queen Vashti, to come before him and before all the people at his party that they could admire her beauty. Certainly, there was probably drunkenness involved here. Unfortunately for her, Queen Vashti declines and Ahasuerus banishes her from his kingdom and divorces her. He even issues a kingdom-wide decree that men are to be the masters of their house, as if a decree was needed. Well, soon after this, in God's providence, Ahasuerus replaces Queen Vashti with, with Esther through a type of a Persian beauty contest that he puts on. King Ahasuerus shows us that the kingdoms of men often don't rule in a way which is for the benefit of the people and their good but only for his own good. Well, thankful this is unlike the rule of God who guides all things, that he is sovereign over all things for the good of his people. He rules in the hearts and lives and over all things that his people may be saved and for the good whether they feel it or not. Well, now we see here in Esther 3 the sparks of an ancient feud erupting once again. New flames are kindled. This feud has much more far-reaching implications than, say, the trivial feuds between the Hatfields and the McCoys or other cultural feuds that we may know about, the things that happen in Hollywood and whatnot. No, this feud that has begun to flare up here has cosmic and universal consequences, even for us today and beyond. It's the antithesis of Genesis 3.15, the serpent and the seed of the woman at each other's throats. In Genesis 3, verse 15, the Lord had promised that there would be enmity, friction, and opposition between the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent. God himself had promised a serpent in Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In congregation, we see one flare-up of that ancient feud here tonight. 
we see that as the seed of the serpent takes a swipe at the seed of the woman, and that the promise of enmity is certainly alive and very well here. So we'll do this in three points once again. First, we'll look at what this ancient feud is. Second, we'll look at an angry antagonist. And third, we'll look at a sovereign God. The ancient feud, the angry antagonist, and the sovereign God. The sovereign God will certainly oversee this clash, and he will not let it go to waste. Well, first this evening, this ancient feud. Right away in Esther 3, verses 1 and 2, we see the sparks begin to fly. Look with me there again at Esther 3, verses 1 and 2. After these things, that is, that Haman had uncovered a plot, I'm excusing that Mordecai had uncovered a plot against the king's life. After these things, Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. There are a few key details that we must notice here that are easy to miss. This exaltation of Haman comes as a surprise, especially as in the verses just prior to our passage, that Mordecai had uncovered, as we said, a plot to kill the king. Two of his two eunuchs, his guards. And so at the end of Esther 2, we read that Mordecai's deed was recorded in front of the king himself in the book of Chronicles. Which comes back, which comes to play back into play later in the book. But even though Mordecai's deed of saving the king's life was recorded, it was quickly forgotten. We see Ahasuerus give Haman the post of second power to none other than the king himself, and all who who meet this man are to bow down before him and to pay him homage, by command of none less than the king himself. No one is exempted, not the king's servants. Certainly not the king's subjects. And Haman expects that all will observe this command. There is, however, as we just read, one man who will not play ball. In verse 2 we read that all the king's servants at the gate bowed down to Haman as he approached, save one. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage, we read. Why? Why would Mordecai not bow down as all the others were? Was he simply refusing to bow down to no one but the one true God? Could be. Did he see this honorific gesture as a form of king worship or emperor worship? Could be. Perhaps he was jealous that he was forgotten after saving the king's life while Haman was promoted. Honestly, we don't know Haman's motives. We, we cannot get into his head. But we do know that Esther was not afraid to bow before the king. In Esther 8, verse 3, she falls and weeps before the king, begging for the lives, the lives of her people. We have no indication that Mordecai had any scruples about showing the king honor or respect in other situations. So there seems to be something a little bit different going on here with Haman the Agagite. And that right there is what should clue us in. Esther 3, verse 1 is our introduction to Haman, the first time that he is mentioned in this book. He's introduced as Haman the Agagite. Again, this is a very, very important detail to the rest of the story. It's probably the reason why Mordecai would have refused to bow down in respect for Haman. You see, Haman's roots go back to the ancient enemy of Israel, the Amalekites. 
Their later patriarch was Agag, one of Haman's ancestors. Perhaps you remember the battle in the wilderness where Moses would raise his hands and the Lord would keep the battle going strong for Israel. That battle was with the Amalekites. And the Amalekites received a generational punishment for their opposition to the people of Israel. After giving his people a great victory defeating them, the Lord gave this proclamation in Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus chapter 17, the Lord says this to the Amalekites. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out from the memory of Amalek from under of heaven. And Moses built an altar and called, it the name, called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord said that there would be war, enmity, friction between his people and Amalek from generation to generation. And so this is why the author of Esther adds this tantalizing tidbit that Haman was an Agagite, a member of the family, an ancient enemy of Israel. And so as they say, the plot thickens. The book of Esther is not simply an island floating by itself in the whole council of God. In fact, this story is a continuation of the great battle between the covenant God and Satan, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is one of the many preludes to the final battle waged by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the true seed of the woman who would indeed crush the head of the serpent. And so the opposition God between God and the Amalekites, between Israel and the Amalekites, did not end in the wilderness. No, it continues here, and it will continue from generation to generation. Well, years after this battle that Moses won by the, by the Lord's power and the conquest of Canaan, another man from the tribe of Benjamin, a son of Kish, was commanded to devote all the Amalekites to the ban meaning he was supposed to destroy all the Amalekites in his battle, to leave no one standing, no man, woman, or child, no ox or donkey, no animal, nothing, to leave the plunder. He was supposed to destroy them, the enemy of God, fully. If you would, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel chapter 15, we'll begin reading at verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what the Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. They'll kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And drop down, to, if you would, to verse 7. And Saul does this. He defeated Amalek, the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people 
spared Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen, and of the fatted calves and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Saul had an opportunity to destroy one of the enemies of God. God had commanded him to do so. But would he save his people with a small s, a small save of the people? He would not. He saw for himself the good things that decided to take them. And so as Israel entered the promised land, they were to cleanse it of all unrighteousness, to cleanse it of all the wicked people who were in it. And now Saul is once again called to destroy an ancient enemy, to completely remove them from the land. But it didn't happen in the conquest of Canaan as it was supposed to. Here again with Saul, it doesn't happen again. And it never would until the full the coming of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Our sins always bear consequences. They bear fruit. Had Saul followed the command to wipe out the Amalekites, there would be no Haman here in Esther to provoke God's people. But the eye for personal gain, the follow the lusts and desires of his heart, cost not only Saul but his people dearly. And so it is with us when we take our eyes off the rest earned for us by Christ, when we desire the things of the world and not the things of God, when we ignore God's law, it will bear consequences and fruit in our lives. We will reap what we sow. And this is especially true for those of us with children, as our decisions, our example, bears upon the next generation. What pet sins do you and I have? What do we let be? What desires do we wink at at the expense of even our own children? Something for us to ponder. But now here in Esther, 75 years after the fall of Judah, and 400 years before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant people find themselves dispersed and occupied, still in search of true and final rest. And they're searching for rest even from their enemies. But now another son of Kish, as Saul was, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, as Saul was, sees the face of the ancient foe, and he refuses to bow down and honor him. What will become of Mordecai? Can God's people ever find rest from the battle and the oppression of the serpent? When will the seed of the woman finally and forever crush the head of the serpent, even as the serpent is crushing his heel? There seems to be a lot more heel crushing going on than head crushing, especially as God's son Israel is being handed over to death for a few talents of silver. Again, brothers and sisters, Esther is not an isolated island in Scripture. The battle is raging on even in the book where God's name is not mentioned. His name may not be read, but his mighty hand will certainly be seen this evening. As the seed of the serpent makes much noise, you will never get the last laugh. So secondly, we see this evening in this feud an angry antagonist. Mordecai's act of protest indeed does not go unnoticed. It went on for days before it was brought to the attention of Haman. Esther 3, verses 3 and 4. 
Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. And so they told Haman. As Haman approaches the gate, once again, after he's been told, he notices, finally, Mordecai's act of defiance. And according to Esther 3, verse 5, he was filled with fury and anger. And now Haman is a schemer. He could have had Haman handed over to his demise himself. He could have had him executed. He could have had his servants right then and there carry out an execution. But Haman is too crafty for this. Nor would killing Mordecai be enough revenge for this bloodthirsty enemy of God and his people. We read in verse 6, So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, his people, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout all the kingdoms of Ahasuerus. Fast forward two millennia, the situation is still the same. It's not enough for the enemies of God to profane the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and King. The King who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross for his subjects. The people of the King are persecuted daily on almost every continent of this world. Even though that's to varying degrees, it is still an oppression of God's people. And even in some places, this oppression is to the point of death. But no, here in Esther, Haman would not settle for Mordecai's death. Only the blood of Mordecai's people, the Jews, would do for his revenge. And so Haman plotted and then went to meet with King Ahasuerus. And just like the devil in Genesis 3, Haman padded his proposal with half-truths and lies. He says, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it, it, not, so that it is not prof to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's treasuries, that they may be put into the king's business. Haman makes the covenant people sound like rebels to the king. They have different laws, he says. They don't keep the king's laws, he says. Haman himself was willing to pay 10,000 talents of silver to betray the covenant people to death. It's important to note that when we read that Haman says that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them, a more literal translation of what he is saying there, that the king should not give them rest. What a powerful vision of this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We serve a gracious God who promises in this era rest in types and shadows and gives it in full in his son Jesus Christ who fulfills our covenant obligation. And Jesus Christ who endures covenant sanctions and punishments unto the point of death. And Jesus Christ who was tempted by the devil with lies and ultimately was betrayed for 30 talents of silver, an even cheaper and insulting price for his disgusting betrayal. He was not betrayed against his will, though. He said, no, not my will, but your will be done to his father. 
in his death and resurrection, in his rule, we find true rest in the true seed of the woman. But not so here yet finally in our book of Esther. The serpent here demands that the covenant of people be destroyed. And so the situation looks especially dark once again for the people of God. In verses 10 and 11, Ahasuerus gives his satraps, his stamp of approval, to Haman's wicked plan. He says, he sends a letter out. He says, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And so we see the decree go out. It's sent out to all the governors of all the provinces and all the languages so that everybody knows that on one certain day the Jews are to be destroyed and exterminated. And now Haman the Agagite, an Amalekite, the representative seed of the serpent, has the king's approval to conduct warfare, destroying God's people to destroy every breathing soul who is part of the seed of the woman. But in this feud, we do have this angry antagonist, this one who wants to destroy God's people. The congregation, the news is yet good because there's a sovereign God who is in control of this situation, a sovereign God who works all things for the good and salvation of those who love him and whom he loves. So thirdly, we see the sovereign God this evening. In Esther, 3 verses, in Esther 3, verses 15 and following. But before we go there, let's look at Psalm 2, verse 4. There God reminds, the psalmist reminds us of this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The king hold, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So Haman and Ahasuerus may be complicit in trying to destroy God's people. Well, what does the Lord do? What is his response? He sits in heaven and laughs. And while the covenant people receive horrible and tragic news that the people may exterminate them, the Lord will not stand still. The Lord will not allow the seed of the serpent to strike the decisive blow against the seed of the woman. What do we read in Esther 3, verse 15? And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was what? Thrown into confusion. Haman thinks he's on the cusp of a great victory. And once again, we have plenty of drinking. But perhaps the celebration is a little bit premature. This is a sober and frightful time for the people of God. But not a time to lose hope. Perhaps, as we said earlier, we don't hear God's name read in this book. But we do see his hand steadily at work. In the conquest of Canaan, the Lord caused confusion among the Hivites and the Amorites in Exodus chapter 27 so that the Israelites could defeat them. He did the same with Gideon and his men as he defeated the Midianites in Judges chapter 7. And early on, we see some cracks here forming in Haman's plan before it even gets off the dock. In Esther 3, verse 7, Haman and his men cast lots to determine when they should schedule their genocide. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, 
They cast peer, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. They're casting lots. But again, what does God's word, what does the full story tell us about this? We're reminded in Proverbs 16, verse 33, that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision comes from who? It comes from the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 33. And so not even the timing of Haman's wicked plot is left up to him alone. God is even in control of this as he throws them into confusion. God is protecting the seed of the woman in the face of fierce opposition from the seed of the serpent. God's plans cannot and will not ever be thwarted. The covenant people had to look to God for their salvation alone. So even as we face opposition in this life, we remember that indeed the defining blow has been given to the serpent. God's plans cannot fail. Christ came came to conquer all powers of darkness. None of them could prevail against him. Not Not the scribes, not the Pharisees, not the teachers, no government, even his people were stacked against him, and yet he prevailed. And even as Christ was betrayed by one of his own, he crushed the head of the serpent once and for all. It is there that we find our only hope for our fight with sin, the devil, and our flesh. And even though Satan's head has been crushed at the cross, he is still reeling and writhing and feuding with God's people. Sometimes it feels like God isn't there. But... He has revealed himself to us in the person and work of Christ. God is there, whether we feel it or not. He works for our good. He works for our salvation. He never wastes opportunities, cancer, loss of work, all sorts of ways, sickness, disease, many ways in which our lives seem to go off the tracks. And yet the Lord reminds us that we are part of his bigger story. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture, the ones that he protects, the ones that he will not let go from his hand. So congregation, we have great hope in this one who has crushed the head of the serpent and who will come again to judge the living and the dead and to deliver the final and fulfilled victory. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your hand in history, that not a day or hour goes by that is not within your control, that does not happen without your permission, Father, that is ultimately not part of your good and gracious plan for your people. And so we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, that we can say, even as we go through struggles, it is well with our souls. Because, Father, we know that one day our faith will be made sight. Clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. And our Lord Jesus Christ will descend. And every tear will be wiped from our eyes. And we will live with you in perfect peace and love forever. We thank you for this. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.